Welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. I first want to thank CD Media, in particular Todd Wood, the publisher of CD Media, for providing a platform for our program. I also want to thank our producers for today's episode, retired Air Force Colonel Mike Pefley and retired Navy Captain Brent Ramsey. Our guest today is a classic American soldier and an American citizen fighting for the restoration of America's constitutional republic. Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb is a fourth generation Montanan who enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1991 and was assigned to the United States Army's Presidential Honor Guard in Fort Myer, Virginia. He later joined the Montana Army National Guard in Billings, Montana while working on his bachelor's degree. He graduated from Montana State University in 1998 and began a career as an Army aviation officer. He spent one year in South Korea, one deployment to North Africa, four deployments to Afghanistan, and one deployment to Central and Eastern Europe. Upon retirement in 2019, he became the Montana State Coordinator for all Army military funeral honors. Colonel Gobb now serves as the Executive Director for Restored Liberty. He has been married for 27 years and has two adult children. Welcome to our program, Colonel Gobb. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Scott. It's a pleasure to see you and a pleasure to be here. I look forward to having a, a good conversation about what's going on with you. Well, I've had the privilege of learning a lot about you and what you've been doing for our country. And so I want our audience to kind of hear that as well. So you've had a long and an illustrious career in the Army, 20 years. Can you briefly describe the mission and your tenure in the Old Guard and what it meant to you? Yeah, that was uh, an interesting assignment. It's certainly not ever something, not something I ever saw myself doing. I got recruited out of basic training and advanced training to go directly into that unit for a variety of reasons. And of course, this is uh, 1991 and 18 years old, and you never fully, fully appreciate at 18 years old what you appreciate at, uh, you know, at 50 and on. And um, I guess today, looking back on it, as well as having been that military funerals coordinator, uh, you, you learn to appreciate the sacrifices that so many have made over the generations and the decades uh, over the course of this nation's history. And it's, uh, I started actually doing everything I could to find out about the people whose funerals I was at, whether I was overseeing it in a civilian capacity or in the funeral itself in a, in a uniform capacity. It was a, it became more and more fascinating each time because you'd find people that were involved in, I was like, this guy was a, you know, a POW who jumped into Normandy. And he didn't get freed until after the war. He'd, he'd uh, be involved in, you know, Sante prison raids in Vietnam and, and My Lai. And, 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 and you can pick a number of names out there that are quite famous. But then you'd also read, read about people who, you know, did just odd jobs from, you know, aerial surveillance in Alaska against the Russian nuclear threat and people who worked in Greenland. And it's just, there, there are so many things out there and so many stories that over time, I really grew to appreciate that uh, the, the sacrifices that people make are, are varied and they're different levels, but they're all there regardless. Uh, the family sacrifice alongside them. And I think in the end, as, as we as veterans and then we as citizens, 
should look at these uh, the sacrifices in their stories and realize that we owe them and their families the you know, I guess you could say that we, we should live the life that is worthy of their sacrifice and do the things that is worthy of their sacrifice and not just sit back and watch what is going on today and just say, oh, well, I can't do anything about it. Well, maybe we can or we can't. Well, but that doesn't mean we should step in. <laughs> I think what you're really driving home is a point that we're not dealing with numbers. We're dealing with people. And right. people have had wonderful lives. And I, I learned that up close and personally when I was pulled out of the Pentagon to Alaska to solve an issue uh, related to losing an AWACS aircraft and 24 American Canadian lives. We had a closure ceremony with a nice display with a replica of the AWACS aircraft and 24 bronze plates on this wall. And when the narrator read off the names and the honor guard was lifting the, the plate off and putting a rose on it, he skipped a name. And I could tell he skipped a name. Hmm. And at that hmm. moment, you could hear the sob, the sobs coming from the stand, the family members of that fallen airman. I mean, it was, it, it was like there's no closure for them. Right. And so, so your experience with the old guard and working the military funeral honors there in Montana really drives home the, the existential nature of service to our nation, which leads me to a, a pretty substantive question. You served our nation in foreign locations to include four tours in Afghanistan. Since you had skin in the game, what is your assessment of America's departure from Afghanistan after a 20-year multi-trillion dollar investment? Well, I guess the simple way to sum that one up is it was it was a national tragedy played out on a global scale with everybody watching. And everybody knew it. Um, and there are so many individual stories of heroism, of individual soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, civilians, Afghans, and in a variety of people that did you know, insurmountable or worked against insurmountable odds to do great things in order to accomplish the mission, even as well as they were able to. But uh, I think it, uh, it it does bode the question of what did we accomplish? And there are many, many stories of great accomplishments in Afghanistan at the individual level. Uh, you know, me personally, I've, I've flown children around Afghanistan to get the medical treatment that saved their lives. And although I was just a pilot flying him somewhere where the uh, medical personnel did the, the true miracle. Uh, just being a part of some of those things lets you know that you're, you're making a difference on a small scale. But on a large scale, the, the complete and abject failure of that mission was a message that resonated globally. And we're still seeing it today because I think it had a key role in, in I guess, informing and influencing the decisions of people like Putin to say, you know what, we've got basically an absence of leadership in the United States right now. I'm going to go ahead and make a move against Ukraine, which is something my co-founder and I anticipated as soon as Afghanistan happened. Now, and that's on a, that's on a strategic scale, I mean, things that you clearly understand and have dealt with personally in your own way as well. Uh, but then there's the soldiers that look at this and say, you know what, you know, I'm one example. I was there four times. There are others who've been there more far more and there are those who've been there less but they all ask the question what did we do 
And, and what did we leave behind? Because ultimately, you've got a country now that reverts back to what it was before, for the most part, with the, an even heavier Chinese influence. Who I saw the Chinese there in 2006, so they've been there a while. And we've spent, you know, blood and treasure in large amounts for it to go back to largely what it was. Right. Uh, and that's that doesn't bode well, not only because of Afghanistan and what it can become again. But uh, again, what what has it done on a global scale? And it's emboldened Russia, it's emboldened China, and a lot of different moves that could or or could not happen. We don't know yet. But the absence of leadership means that they see this global chessboard as more favorable to what they're trying to do for tyranny than what we as America would hopefully be fighting for with liberty. Well, I can imagine that uh, disappointment would have been an understatement given your experiences over there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I want to and get into that a little bit more, but uh, yeah. let's, let's inject a little commercial, commercial here. here. Restore, Restore Liberty has many facets. facets. It's a charitable, charitable nonprofit. Profit. It has a it political, political arm and a super PAC. How do these various elements work individually and together in your mission of restoring constitutional liberty? Yeah, that's uh, a very good question. And because uh, it's easy to say that our mission is our title and that's uh it's pretty clear in that but uh, the, the the harder question is how how do you do that and, and those different arms allow us to do a number of things and the the two nonprofit arms allow us to on one side to educate people to uh, go around it, not only on constitution and history but on being a grassroots activist in, in the right way and how that works best from if you're testifying to legislation how do you how do you dress how do you speak how do you testify to a bill effectively that kind of stuff the uh, the other side of the nonprofit is uh, is a c4 which allows us to do certain other things a little bit more but we can endorse candidates and and you mentioned before with the casualty work that uh, these are these are people they're not numbers and so we approach this from a people perspective to where uh, we bring in the human component beyond just a simple questionnaire online or something like that to to endorse candidates. And rather than me in Montana endorse somebody in Florida, uh, we go to a Florida director who gets to with their network and talks to people and finds out who is this person in reality? Are they worthy of servant leadership and servant representation in D.C. or at the local level, whatever, wherever they're running? And if they are, then we'll endorse them. And we know that we're one of the hardest endorsements to get. But if they aren't, we're going to say, we'd rather endorse nobody. Quality over quantity, for sure. And we'll just make little pieces and uh, little uh, inroads in places across the country, like El Paso County, Colorado, hopefully, very soon. Yeah. Um, the other I, arm I, is the I've super. I've seen it. And, yeah. I, I, and I am very impressed with your presence yeah. and impact already. Well, and we're trying to replicate what Cynthia, who's doing the, the, I guess you could say the yeoman's work down there uh, in, in other places. And I look forward to coming down there tomorrow and being at an event with her and the team and, and let them know that they're not alone because we're going to we're going to get treated like you would expect being called all kinds of stuff that is not true sure, by, sure. The, by the media. And we're like, you know what, that's actually a stamp of approval that we're doing the right thing. Well, no, because no. our other side is a super PAC and the super PAC, we just get to get involved in races that we truly care about and independent expenditures on 
candidate's behalf. And that kind of allows us the flexibility to do a number of things in the political arena. And I can do all of those things and just wear certain hats for certain things. Well, and I'm impressed. You've, you've been in existence for what, a year? Well, uh, January 2020 is when we when I started really kind of building a very small thing that I didn't anticipate being from Montana. And then we went public July 21st of last year. And, and uh, yeah, it's everything we do. We say God's hands are on these things because there's there's nothing we do that we can do through our own inherent just will and talent. There's there's way too much to it. Well, and to, to demonstrate the impact you're having, in less than a year, you have an infrastructure in how many states? Uh, we're looking at about 35. And of course, 35. some are more active than others. You know, Cynthia is a great example in Colorado. Uh, Rebecca Cheney down in Mississippi, uh, our Pennsylvania team, the Washington team. And we've got people running for office now, too, from state legislators to um, Tambourine Burley, Washington, uh, Washington State's director, and she's running for secretary of state. So, uh we don't just talk. Uh, we're going to make sure that we do the walk as well. You know, win or lose, we're at least going to be there. Well, you know, what, what amazes me is we have two major factions in America right now. Mm-hmm. We have that group that understands what our Declaration of Independence and Constitution are all about and the political philosophy that inspired both of those documents. And then we have another faction that's anti-America. They believe in a living Constitution, which means... The Supreme Court basically amends it, uh, and so and they have a different set of values. Uh, and so, your presence and the infrastructure that you've already built, thirty-five states, I think, is just incredibly important. First of all, people recognize the need, and people are are signing up to help. Uh, but I'm going to get back to the more egregious thing that is happening in America right now. Uh, the organization which I helped co-found, Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services, or STARS, is involved in stemming radical efforts in our services. In the process, we have discovered grave injustices to our service members, such as an illegal vaccination mandated by the Secretary of Defense that has already driven thousands of service members in all branches of our military uh, out of out of the service. They've been drummed out of the military. We recently learned about an individual still on active duty who is facing serious issues. He served under your command. Mm-hmm. Well, we initially wanted to have this individual on today's program. We elected to keep him anonymous to avoid any additional uh, issues and to let you tell his story, if you don't mind. You, sure. You know, you know him well. You've been working with him. You've been a mentor. Uh, how and when did did you meet this individual? Well, um, really, we met when you know, the best example is when I was in command of a uh, both a brigade route detachment in Fort Carson, Colorado, and then and then a battalion that I followed on afterwards. And uh, without divulging a whole lot, that would make him really easy to identify if you go into what his specialties and stuff are. Uh, he's a he's a warrant officer that uh, I've known for almost a decade now that uh, either worked directly for me or had one person in between us. And I've seen him routinely both on, in, in the States and overseas, whose uh, whose work ethic has never been in question, whose uh, whose word 
and ethics in general have never been in question. And uh, it's amazing how a person can go from that to being crushed by his entire chain of command because the word vaccine was involved. And uh, if, if you'd like me to, I can summarize a bit of that story and why it was critical, because this is a little bit different than a lot of the scenarios that people are used to hearing, uh, if that's what you'd like me to do now. Well, STARS, Stars is involved in the vaccine as well. Initially, we were very reluctant to get involved, and then we discovered how radical it really was. And so our general counsel is representing individuals in this ordeal. So, yes, I think our audience would appreciate some more detail. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. for those who've served before, you know, when you're getting ready to leave one installation and go to another installation, that part of what you do is you go to multiple different agencies across across that post or air base and, and you pick up records and do various things that allow you to leave there with all the stuff that you're supposed to have to go to the next to, to go to the next location one of those facilities of course is your is your medical facilities both dental and general medical pick up records you know you get a signature you move on when we do that of course we're extremely busy and we're just trying to get in and out and move on to the next place because we've got so many other things we have to do and this uh, officer was getting ready to head from his current installation overseas to another installation and went in to get his medical records. They had a, a conversation with people at the front desk and various things and about the vaccine and things like that and how he wasn't necessarily for it, but he would be receiving it in order for him to be able to make that move for him and his family. Uh, and so he signed out his he got his records, he got signed out. And next thing you know, he's dealing with accusations that uh, he'd falsified his own records in order to show that vaccine. Well, what was interesting, of course, was he was going from that facility and, and he had an appointment to go to another location to get the vaccine anyways in order to meet the timeline by per his orders to have that done to to conduct his move overseas. And I think we both know that when anybody who's moving like that to pick up their records you're not going to go through pages and pages of shot records to figure out what's on there and what's not. It's like pick up the folder, put it in your, in your bag and, and you move on to the next place. No, nobody checks that. Uh, but, but it was checked by his chain of command. They falsely accused him of falsifying his records. And the person that had been in, in the medical facility had a history of falsifying records and a whole bunch of other things uh, that lead into why this is wrong in the, in the first place. Uh, and he ended up getting the vaccine anyways in order for him to be able to make the move. So it wouldn't make any sense for him to even risk falsifying records for something he planned to do anyways. Uh, but it turned into something that was weaponized, I guess you could say, against him by his entire chain of command. And because vaccines were involved, there was no way they were going to back off the fact uh, of their accusations. They told him he was not part of an investigation while he was being investigated, which is not legal. And uh, when I personally saw the investigation as a battalion and brigade commander who'd done this kind of stuff in the past, it's simply the worst I'd ever seen. And I would have turned it around immediately and had him redo the entire thing because it was it was just terrible. It wouldn't pass muster at all. Uh, but nevertheless, it continued forward and they, they gave him a memorandum of reprimand and they held up his promotion and his move. And they've continued to come after him to this day in every way they possibly can. They've circled around themselves as a chain of command, despite their 
terrible investigation despite the, the very clear targeting of him as an individual because everybody is afraid to step out and do the right thing when it comes to this well let me, let me let me ask you something darren sure the uh now his wife was pregnant with a complicated pregnancy right. and there were some concerns about his not being able to be there to to be by her side during this process is that mm -hmm. is that correct oh absolutely i mean it's any any tool they could as a chain of command use against against him and that and that's everything from the big things like the promotion and the move and all, all these things his family was counting on but his ability to go on a on a mileage pass you know drive more than 250 miles in a weekend or whatever and see his family and work with his family through a through a, a pregnancy and this is not of course his first kid they've they have multiple children um and that just became one more thing that they, they disregarded when it comes to taking care of soldiers and their families as we are all supposed to do when we're in in command well and i and i don't want to get into too many details to still protect his uh, privacy but uh, there was an inspector general complaint and then a flying evaluation board and as aviators you never want to be confronted with a flying evaluation board because that's basically a tribunal that will take your wings away for uh, you know for incompetence or dereliction right. and and so uh, and i understand he the flying evaluation board came after an inspector general complaint Right. Yeah. First, yeah, he first submitted a, uh, a request to look into this to the Department of Defense Inspector General's office, who immediately remanded it all back to the same chain of command who'd been coming after him for months. And after that, they decided to do a flight evaluation board, which uh, if a, an aviator, of course, loses his wings, uh, you lose pay, you lose your specialty, you lose all your years of training. Uh, and in fact, at this point, he also had his retirement being threatened as well. Interesting thing, of course, is that the, the same evidence for both sides of this was used at the flight evaluation boards as was used for his retirement and all the other work that was going on. He went into that flight evaluation board and I was one of the people who uh, did some remote testimony into it. And they walked away with the entire investigation was unsubstantiated. So if it's unsubstantiated after going through a grueling board process, and then still used by the other side of this equation to hold up a, a move and a, a, a bad evaluation to and the promotion that goes with it. You can see that it's clearly built on a house of cards and it was quite obvious. But what have they done now? They're doubling down on just continuing to attack him and he can't leave. And so he stays subject to these folks and hope that they can get he can get a different kind of a chain of command that's willing to stand on behalf of the soldiers and what is right rather than those who stand in fear because of the word vaccine well wow. it, it just seems like his due process it doesn't exist uh, and i understand he has spent thousands of dollars for uh, legal fees to to really to defend himself not to attack but to defend himself uh, in the system yeah, we think it's a little over $30,000 right now, and it could be a whole lot more. And of course, this is a man with multiple children that he would love to be able to spend that money on on his kids. Sure. sure. Uh, and he's well, under an exorbitant amount of stress, <laughs> as you can imagine. 
Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that story. And I, I hope that someday justice will prevail. And, you know, we're going to hold that word because later I want to share a quote uh, that I, I hope our listeners will resonate with. Uh, but moving on, in America's current state of affairs, there seems to be a plethora of what many would call government overreaches. In your opinion, what have you witnessed as the most egregious things that have been done at any level of government? And when I'm asking this, I'm not implying that you or I are anti-government, but we feel that we, the people, have an obligation to provide oversight for the government and to ask questions when they need to be asked. So in your opinion, what have you witnessed as the most egregious things that have been done at any level of government? Well, going back to what you first said, or what you finished up there about uh, our job and you know, anti-government versus being pro-government with uh, more like pro-limited government. Um, I have a quote that I, I shared with some folks that I like that I wrote about government like gardening is something that needs to be tended. And if we don't tend it, the weeds will come in and take over and make it And the longer that goes, the harder, of course, it is to clean up. Um, and as I think about, you know, your question, it's easy to go down the line of mask mandates, vaccine mandates, the CRT, uh, social emotional learning, and all of that bucket uh, that, in, that is after our children in our schools to warp their minds against uh, facts, data, science, and common sense. Uh, and every one of those is a government overreach. And there are many more examples from central banking systems to um, some of the treaties that we have overseas that are that are kept quiet. Even these attempts to potentially put us under some sort of World Health Organization mandate if they declare it. And whether they succeed or fail is not the point. Oftentimes, it's the fact that they're willing to pursue them at all is, is disturbing. And what I ended up doing was instead of trying to pick out which one of these stuck out the most, I mean, is it is it Joe Biden falsely calling the nine millimeter a high caliber weapon or you know, all of these things were this, if they don't understand even what they're dealing with, then how can they legislate against it? I think most of us saw the, uh, the, the trial of, um, well, his name will come to me again for our, the kid Sus in Michigan. Sussman. Mark Sussman. Well, Sussman, yeah, that's that's what we call the Washington District of Corruption, perfectly you know, exemplified there. Clear evidence in front of everybody that would put any of us in jail uh, is just waved off. Um, but also our, our young man who, who was, uh, in I think, uh, up in Wisconsin, who, who was exonerated for shooting those Antifa-type people in self-defense quite clearly and you saw the lawyer's action with the weapon i mean it's as soon as you see him waving this gun around his finger on the trigger you're just like there are so many people making decisions about things they have no understanding of in the first place uh so to answer your question ultimately about what do i think is the most egregious government overreach I, and i i just came down to the fact that they have destroyed trust the trust that we the people who ultimately own and run the government have been placed in any of these agencies or bureaucracies that are supposed to be working on our behalf to set conditions that we can thrive in. And instead, with the Department of Justice basically being, you know, corrupted every, at, at every level and no longer working for the people, 
and many other agencies that I'm sure we could go through as well. Uh, when the people over time continuously lo lose trust in the government's ability to do its most basic functions, that is the worst violation I can see of any kind. Because if there's no trust, nothing else matters. Well, what, what, what concerns me, Colonel Gobb, is talking to even some of my own friends, raising some of these issues with them, and, and you get the deer in the headlights look as if, what are you talking about? And it seems like there's a, so much that's happening under the radar and the ordinary American citizen, you know, they're safe, they're comfortable. They just go on, you know, with, with things as ordinary. Yes. I, I, I guess when I'm out talking, I tell people, so the most dangerous thing going on in America right now is mass apathy. Uh, and it's, it's either they don't have the time to think about it. They don't want to think about it. They're scared. Uh, or they have no perspective of history uh, with what's going on. Uh, those who see it can't unsee it and often can't fail to do something about it in whatever way they can. Well, now you are restored liberty. You have a vision and you've mm -hmm. built an infrastructure. So how does restored liberty fit in to the solution here? Well, I think first and foremost is that I don't think you need a party to get people elected. Because parties and, you know, being a Republican county chairman, even here, uh, mm -hmm. committee leadership, I guess you could say, is an oxymoron. And you know, these committees and the rules and all these things are, are, they seem to be specifically built in order to make these organizations ineffective or to let those who are liars, cheaters and grifters come in and, and ruin them. Uh, Washington, you know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and all these folks, they didn't necessarily belong to a party to become where they needed to be to serve this people. And we know, generally speaking, our candidates, where they have to align with the party, are, are generally going to be GOP. But we really don't like to be partisan. We want to be American. And I think that's what helped me start this And uh, with uh, my co-founder, Blaine Holt. We said, you know what? This nation really lacks true leadership on so many levels. And we're not saying we're the answer. We're just one answer in our way that should work together and build coalitions of people working together to where, you know, if someone's looking, we want to build trust as an organization to the point where if someone says, hey, who should I vote for in this race, in whatever county, city, or state, that if we've gotten involved in that race and, and, or, and uh, endorsed one of the people, that they can go forward knowing that that candidate is extremely good and well and well positioned for that job uh will it be perfect nothing's ever perfect but uh we're just tired of the lesser to a lesser of two evils approach because that's still evil and why would we put our name behind it and so we're not going to do every race but we're going to make sure to magnify the good ones and we've got you know, nearly 30 states with people endorsed and about almost 70 candidates a lot of local level work in some state well, you know what, uh, you've really identified a, mis a misconception out there. Yeah, Prof no Professor Hill uh, shared that the Constitution is both a scientific and a political document. And I asked him to ex expand on that. He said it's scientific insofar as our founders had a great understanding of human nature. Mm -hmm. And so they crafted a system of self-governance based on that understanding of human nature. So that was a scientific part. But the political part, it advanced a political 
philosophy that we've known as classical liberalism. And it really dates back as far as Aristotle, who first wrote Nicomachean Ethics, a system of virtuous behavior, before he wrote on politics. And Aristotle believed politics was the ultimate duty of a virtuous, educated citizen. And so I see restored liberty really advancing that concept and that philosophy, which I think is extremely important. But a couple of things I'd like to add. We talked about uh, what's going on in America right now. The Washington Post last month came out with an article doing a survey of all the right-wing uh, terrorist activities, militant activities taking place but never mentioned any of the Black Lives Matter or Antifa riots that cut across our nation uh, last summer or the summer of 2020. We're talking hundreds, but yet that, no mention of it. And so we're dealing with a media that seems to be operating from a different type of political philosophy than that which was the basis for our, our nation. Uh, and I wanna share with you, and I, I'm sure you've, you've heard this quote before, uh, John Stuart Mill hmm. in 1862 published an essay in Fraser's magazine with the title The Contest in America. He laid out a case that Great Britain should not intervene in our civil war. It had a textile industry that was critically dependent upon cotton from the southern states. And so Mill was trying to explain that Lincoln and his supporters we're trying to solve a very serious problem in America. And being a, a military aviator, I'm sure you've heard this quote, but I want our members in the audience to hear it because this is speaking to restore liberty and what the fight that you're engaged in. Yeah. Mill said, war is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling, which thinks nothing worth a war is worse. When a people are used as mere human instruments for firing cannon or thrusting bayonets in the service and for the selfish purposes of a master, such a word degrades a people. And I'd like to insert editorially, we talk about vaccination mandates, mask mandates, and that sort of thing. Uh, this is what this part of the quote is referring to. A war to protect other human beings against tyrannical injustice a war to give victory to their own ideas of right and good, and which is their own war carried on for an honest purpose, but by their free choice is often the means of their regeneration. A man who has nothing which he is willing to fight for, nothing which he cares more about than he does about his personal safety is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. That's restore liberty. As long as justice and injustice have not terminated their ever-renewing fight for ascendancy in the affairs of mankind, human beings must be willing, when need is, to do battle for the one against the other. And to me, that's a rallying cry for restore liberty and other efforts that are uh, fighting for our constitutional republic. Uh, absolutely, I'm very familiar with that quote. And there's, I mean, there's a lot in there to unpack that you could use your entire episode just breaking that down almost into its individual words. 
and talk history forever. But uh, in, in essence, of course, it's uh, it's it tells us a lot of different stuff here, right? I think it does identify with Restore Liberty and clearly with STARS and other organizations that where we work with them. Uh, we're not all affiliated and formally tied, but we've got to work together in coalitions of the willing who are willing to cooperate with each other because we are so few. But sometimes a few is all you need to, to keep this thing going. And, you know, as Restore Liberty grows in whatever pace it grows in each of its individual states, you know, whether it's highly organized or just starting or whatever, it doesn't really matter. But uh, in the end, we've all accepted the fact that now we're going into a conflict that will have a loser and a winner, you know, to make it very simple. And we also accept the fact that we could end up the loser. But what we can't be is watching all of this happen to where people like us are the losers, but we didn't do anything to try to prevent it. So uh, whether we win or lose, we're going to be standing there at the end saying we that we were there and we tried. And in that trying and that error and that effort and the, you know, the painful process of doing these things, we can stand there and say we won for the sake of our kids and our grandkids, or we can say we lost, but we weren't just going to watch. And uh, some of my presentations when I'm traveling around the country, I, I talk to people about these, you know, there's a lot, there's rallies all the time. This is just an example of the difference between, I think, what a lot of people do and what we want to be able to do. Uh, if you go to a rally and you unfurl a flag, you say some things, you hang around for a couple hours and you go home, you furl your flag and you stick it in the corner and you wait for the next rally. Uh, our opposition is willing to let us do that 24 uh, seven until the end of days. And, and they're not worried about us doing that because it's ineffective in the end. Now, rallies are okay if you tie it to something else like going into your legislature or, or researching uh, your state code or your state laws on things and uh, stuff like that. But uh, we really kind of have a no rally policy. It says you're supposed to get out there mm -hmm. and do something and do something effective. And uh, I use the analogy, like if, if someone's at their house and if they've ever built a house, built a garage, a shed, planted a garden, done yard work, that kind of stuff, um, you know, is, is the way to get that kind of work done to go to a pro garden planting rally at your state capitol and then come home and sit in the couch and hope somebody else will come plant your garden for you. You know, you've got to get out there on your knees and you've got to with a shovel and you've got to get dirty and you're going to end up with uh, band-aids and scars and, and whatever else from doing the hard work that it takes to get these things built. So if you want to build something that's worth it and that's long lasting, you will walk away with scars, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so do expect to walk away from this fight with scars. Well, well, <coughs> that's a, that's a great closing pitch, Colonel Gobb. Uh, how can our viewers learn more about uh, your enterprise? Uh, uh, our website is restore-liberty.org, and uh, when you see John American flag on blue background, that's us, and we have an, an elm tree with the Gadsden, Gadsden flag snake as part of our logo, so if, when you see that, it's there, and uh, the donation portal on that page is our C4, so it's not tax deductible, uh, but you can send an email to our inbox if you want to get involved in our pack or our uh, tax deductible C3 side. Um, but ultimately, uh, 
if you contact us at a national scale, we'll put you in connection with the state director. And if there's no state director there, we'll let you know and just say, hey, keep an eye out for somebody who might fit what we're doing. Uh, you would be impressed with the people that are in this organization. And it has nothing to do with myself or Blaine. You totally just look at people like Cynthia and you know, Rebecca and Bethany in Florida, and I could lay it all out. But uh, financial support is critical to what we do. Nobody gets paid for anything in our organization. We are all volunteers. That way we people know that we're in it for the right reasons and, and not for profiteering. Um, so and if you can help us financially, if you can help with time, just let us know where you want to get plugged into. Um, and ultimately build the network at your local level. You know, don't worry about the White House. Find out who all your patriot, good, true friends are in your county, your city, and wherever you are. And start getting connected to them and, and function and work at the local level. And we'll go from there. Well, and it's, it's refreshing to be involved in something that's right and good. And so, Colonel Gobb, can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to, to talk to our audience about Restore Liberty, but also to share an important story about a friend of yours who right now is uh, in, enduring an unfortunate uh, circumstance. And so you can count us being in, in your corner to support what you're doing. And, uh, and we thank you again for being on the program. Thanks, Dr. Scott. Of course, we're, we're in your corner as well. And for those listening, just know that though these things are happening in the military, there are many true patriots still serving. And uh, we, we want to fight on their behalf. Amen to that. Thanks, Colonel Gobb. Right. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Right. Have a good day. You too.